Hey, hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Today we have a mailbag podcast, our sixth, with me, hence the title, What Does the Fox Say?, which is how we now label my solo mailbag podcast. Thank you to our friends at The Toast for coming up with that title. Thank you to today's mailbag contributors, and thanks to all of you who have been sending in questions for our mailbag. Keep them coming. To send them in, you can either email us directly at hw at healthfulwoman.com or go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com and click on the link that says, send us your questions. Please remember, the questions you send in are for mailbag podcasts, not for personal medical advice that you need answered quickly. If you have a question about your own health that you need answered quickly, ask your doctor. Finally, if you want to pre-order the book Emily Oster and I wrote, The Unexpected, we have a link on our website. Take a look at that. The book comes out in just a few months. And when I have more information on book signings and the like, I will pass them along. Thanks for listening. See you all next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Hey everyone, welcome to mailbag number six. What does the fox say? All right, our first question is from Claire, and it's regarding labor floor culture. Claire writes, Hi, Dr. Fox. Thanks so much for your thoughtful podcast. I found so many of your episodes to be so incredibly helpful. My first son was born in California and my second was born in Switzerland. Both took place in big teaching hospitals, but were incredibly different experiences. My question is, how much does culture influence medicine and birth specifically? How much do birth practices differ worldwide? Thank you. Well, Claire, thanks for the question. The short answer is, I don't know. I don't know how much birth practices vary worldwide, although I suspect there is a wide variation in certain practices and less variation in others. The reason I don't know is I have not been around the world or seen all the labor floors or how all hospitals practice. Obviously, I have friends and colleagues uh, around the world. And again, in certain things, we do things remarkably similar and other things, it definitely varies. Obviously, there's a major component related to resources in certain countries or in certain towns in certain countries with limited resources. It's definitely going to be different compared to, let's say, high-income countries or high-resource countries. And so there's a huge variation in that regard. But amongst sort of places with high resources, just practices and medical practices, again, I would imagine there's differences in some and not in others. As for culture, I do think it matters a lot. We've discussed this on the podcast before, sort of in bits and pieces, but it's a really good question to sort of go over that. And I think that culture is complicated because it's hard to find out what is the culture. I mean, if you work somewhere or you've been a patient there several times, you can definitely get a sense potentially what the culture is like, but it's not something that's readily available to you, the consumer, the patient, you know, whoever it is, you know, who do you ask? What's the culture like at a hospital? And I think that in some instances it is important We've discussed this, for example, with VBAC, right? So VBAC has numbers regarding safety and regarding the likelihood of success and all of these things. And certainly we speak about, you know, it matters who your doctor is, your midwife is, is it something they're comfortable with, something they're capable of doing. 
And then it also matters in terms of the, the place you're going to deliver the hospital, for example, are they capable of responding to emergencies of anesthesia operating rooms? And those are sort of questions you could definitely get answered for you. But the question is, what is the culture about VBEC on a labor floor? And that is a really important piece. And I frequently tell people, you know, you may be a good candidate for VBAC and your doctor or midwife might also be in favor of it. And the hospital may have the resources for it. But if you go to the hospital and every single person there is sort of like, well, why would you VBAC? Why don't you just have another C-section and the nurses aren't for it. And, you know, the doctors who cover the labor floor when your doctors, you know, not there aren't for it. It's probably not the best place to VBAC. Now, it still might be a good place to VBAC. Again, it may not it could be overcome potentially the culture. If you know, you're a good candidate and you're persistent and your doctor's okay with it. Certain things can't be overcome. Like if they're not capable of taking care of some of the VBAC, all right, that's sort of a non-starter, but if it's culture, I think these things do matter. And you know, that's one example. Or for example, if you're planning on bringing a doula with you for support, there's definitely places that are much more open to and friendly to and encouraging of people to bring doulas and other places that are probably would be the opposite. Maybe they would snicker at you or, you know, something. I think that's inappropriate. But again, obviously there's different cultures around the country, around the world. Same thing with just if you're interested in delivering with a midwife, right? Certainly culture is going to play part of it. Obviously some labor floors will have midwives and some won't, but also is the labor floor one where there's a culture where the midwives and the doctors work collaboratively in a really, I guess, in a healthy way to take care of patients versus is there a lot of antagonistic views or potentially oppositional views, which would be unfortunate, but obviously they do exist in certain places. And that's an area of culture. Similarly, if you're having a labor induction, we've spoken about this on the podcast, the outcomes on labor induction are predicated on the idea of having patients with the labor induction. Patients not TS, but CE at the end, meaning to be patient and wait longer time. And so that's an important part of the culture of the labor floor. Are they comfortable with people coming in and having longer inductions versus saying, all right, it's been six hours, you're done, no more. That's something that is hard to get, obviously, but we'll talk about that. I would, in order to get that information, I would say the best way is probably just to ask your doctor or midwife open-ended questions about it. You know, they're they're not there to try to lie to you. So if you said to your, you know, your doctor, for example, VBAC, hey, I'm trying to VBAC, what do you think about it? And they say, oh, that's great. I think you're a good candidate. It should be this, this. And you could say, what's the labor floor like with VBACs? And if they say to you, oh, it's it's amazing. People are supportive of it. The nurses are into it. We love doing it. We do a lot of it. That sounds like a place with a pretty good culture. If they say, my God, I'm the only person there who does VBACs and everyone's yelling at me all day. All right, then that's a decision to make. Maybe it could be overcome. Maybe it can't, but you'll get a sense of what the culture is like. Similarly with inductions, you say, okay, what, what's an induction like, right? That's an open-ended question. And if you hear something to the lines of, well, you know, we start, expect it to be a long time. We have to be very patient. You know, inductions are not a, are not a bad thing. If you're patient and we know what we're doing, that's an answer you want to hear. If you get a sense of, well, we start inductions, but by four o'clock, they're pressuring me to section everybody. All right. That's not the culture potentially that you're looking for. Similarly with doulas and as you just ask, usually people will tell you. I will note that when talking about culture, I'd be very careful when people start quoting or asking for 
cesarean rates, you know, what's the rate of cesarean at this hospital uh, or in this practice. And we've spoken about this on the podcast before. It's not that the rates are wrong, but they could be very misleading because you have to be comparing apples to apples. You know, a hospital that has many more, let's say, high-risk patients, a lot of twins, you know, maybe there's a people with a lot of prior sections who come in, their C-section rate's going to be higher than a hospital that takes care of low-risk, nulliparous patients. And it's not because one hospital's better at doing vaginal deliveries than the other. It's just based on the population that comes there. So I'd be very careful about cesarean rates because frequently they could be misleading. Things to look for are, again, just this general idea that the place is open-minded, that they communicate well, they sort of have a philosophy of patience and teamwork. Those are things that indicate a good culture. And if you start seeing or hearing or feeling the opposite, maybe not. Again, things I care less about, interestingly, are statistics, even though I'm a stati- I'm like a math person, I'm a stats person. If we had really perfect statistics, I think it'd be terrific. But I think what ends up happening is a lot of these statistics are misleading, like statistics about online reviews or patient reviews or C-section rates. They're generally more marketing than they are statistics. Similarly with word of mouth, again, some aspects of word of mouth are going to be helpful if you can ask the right questions, but just someone saying, oh, I had a great birth there. It doesn't necessarily mean they have a great culture. It just means that that person had a good outcome. Obviously, sometimes you don't have a choice, right? Sometimes this is the hospital that's closest. This is the hospital your doctor delivers. Try to make the best of it as you know as you can. And this is why a lot of these questions are best asked early in prenatal care rather than at the very end, because if there's something that's a deal breaker, you want to know about it as early as possible because it gives you potential options if you want to switch. All right, next question from Molly related to placental abruption. Hello, thank you for your great show. I love it. My question is about placental abruption. Could you talk about what this is and why it happens? Background. I have had two perfectly healthy pregnancies and babies delivered via induction at 41 and 41 weeks. At the end of my second labor, when I was around nine to 10 centimeters, but before pushing, I had a quote unquote mild placental abruption, bleeding, baby heart rate decels, but delivered vaginally after a few urgent pushes. My placenta was sent to the lab and the abruption was confirmed. My doctors are not concerned about an increased risk in future pregnancies or labors, but I know this can be an emergency, especially if it happens at home. Curious your thoughts on how concerned I should be if I choose to have another. Thank you. All right, Molly, thank you for the question. Uh, We did have a podcast recently with Andre Rebarber about placental abruption. This question came in before that. So again, some of that or most of this was answered in the podcast, but just as a quick recap. Placental abruption is when the placenta separates off the uterine wall before the baby is born, right? It's supposed to happen after the baby's born. And this can happen in a very small amount. Some people call that mild. It can happen more significantly. And generally, the difference is how bad are the symptoms. And the symptoms are usually vaginal bleeding because then the placenta separates off the uterine wall. There's a bleeding that blood that should be going into the placenta is now tracking Uh, sort of along the uterus and coming out because the placenta is not attached. Another symptom would be since there's decreased oxygen going to the baby in that area that's not getting blood flow, right? If a portion of the placenta comes off, that portion of the placenta is no longer being used to deliver oxygen to the baby. So there could be fetal heart rate decelerations. Another symptom sometimes is pain because the bleeding 
can cause contractions, which can be painful. Again, not everyone has all these symptoms, but that's another possible one. And then if it gets worse and worse, it can lead to bad outcomes, even stillbirth if it happens potentially at home and it's severe. Now, the question is, what is the chance of it happening again? If you have it in one pregnancy, what's the chance in the other? And it's hard to give a precise number because a lot of it depends on the circumstances. There are some situations where it's probably a little bit increased in other circumstances where it's much more increased. It also depends on sort of what was the reason for the abruption. If someone had it because specifically, let's say they got in a bad car crash and it caused an abruption, then probably in the next pregnancy, it's much lower. Whereas if it happened because there was placental insufficiency and she has medical conditions and it caused the placenta not to do well and then to separate, that's more likely to recur. So it depends on the cause. But there is a range and probably it's somewhere in the range of 10 to 30 percent of recurring. So that's higher than it happens in the general population, but more likely than not, it won't recur. And so because of that and that number one variation or range in the chance it's going to recur, number two, the fact that it depends sort of on the cause there's also variation in what we do about it in the next pregnancy, ranging from very little to a lot. Now, it's hard to get specific with you on your question, what happened to you? You're, it sounds like you probably don't have a huge rate of it happening again because it was mild. It happened after 41 weeks. The baby was fine. But, you know, obviously you'd want to get a little bit more precise than that. Generally, if someone has a history of an abruption, either during pregnancy, during labor, during delivery, I do recommend some form of a consultation either before your next pregnancy or at the beginning of your next pregnancy so to sort of go over all the details, all the data, to try to get a sense of what is the likelihood it might recur, why, and what to do about it. Now, in terms of what to do about it, there isn't a lot that we know that will actually prevent it from happening. Again, it depends on the cause. But what we do know is that if we think the cause was related to a problem with the placenta inherently, like some poor attachment to the uterus, that can recur in the next pregnancy, but could also manifest in different ways. It can manifest as maybe the baby not growing as well or even getting preeclampsia. So generally, at least in our practice, we do follow women with a history of, of a placental abruption in a prior pregnancy. In this pregnancy, we do follow them closer. It usually just means more ultrasounds to check that the baby's growing well, maybe more prenatal visits. Again, maybe a closer check at blood pressure, depending on the circumstances. And then another question is whether we're going to induce labor at a certain point, whether near the due date, like at 39 or 40 weeks, or even earlier, potentially at 37 or 38 weeks. The idea being if everything's going fine and it has not yet recurred, the abruption, let's induce labor before it has a chance to recur. And obviously that decision is based on a lot of factors that I couldn't answer right now, but that's sort of the thought process. So when I see someone with the history of an abruption, we try to go through all the data. Why did it happen? What's the chances it's going to happen again? What could we do about it potentially in the next pregnancy to monitor for it? And then the last question is, do we recommend delivering at some point in pregnancy sort of as a preventative measure before it would happen at home, as you said. Okay. Next question is from Shivani and it's about fetal growth restriction. All right. Hello. I was diagnosed with FGR. That's fetal growth restriction and really appreciate the recent podcast on the topic. I'd appreciate a follow-up that dives into how doctors can communicate more clearly SGA and actual restriction 
And also how as a patient, I should think about delivery timing and have a productive conversation with my providers. In my case, the care team keeps mentioning SGA as an option, though my first was normal size and neither my husband nor I are constitutionally small. Also, we are not huge either. But they also mentioned things like imbalanced growth in the fetus, head circumference, femur, femur normal or large, but abdominal circumference and weight were low, a lot of data in there. And so basically at the end, what are the questions to ask a provider to understand the risk benefit analysis? All right, so Shivani, you're asking a really good question about somewhat of a complicated topic, which is fetal growth restriction, also called intrauterine growth restriction, it used to be called intrauterine growth retardation. We don't use that terminology anymore for a lot of reasons. Number one, it just has stigma attached to it, but it's also a little bit more complex pathophysiologically what that means. So usually we're using the terms FGR for fetal growth restriction or IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction. Those are typically interchangeable. It's a complicated topic for many reasons. The first is that, as you mentioned, the terminology is very confusing. Just as FGR versus IUGR, there's also something called SGA, which stands for small for gestational age. And people use that sometimes interchangeably, although it's really not the same. The pathophysiology, meaning why the baby's measuring small, is very wide. And so there's so much that goes into that. And frequently in these conversations, it is confusing on the receiving end, meaning what the hell's going on? Like, why is my baby small? Is it a problem? What are we going to do about it? All these things. And I would say in order to get better information sort of on your end, just understanding it again, we did do a podcast on this. I think it was a pretty good one, but just as a review, when I see people and the baby is measuring small on ultrasound. So a few things, number one, we are not actually weighing the baby on ultrasound. We're not putting the baby on a scale. We're getting measurements. And then the measurements sort of use an algorithm to estimate the fetal weight based on the measurements. We're sort of like, the guy at the carnival looks at you and guesses your weight. Like we're pretty good, but we're not perfect. So number one, we could be wrong. Now it tends to be that when the babies are measuring smaller, we are more accurate than if we think the baby is measuring very big. But again, just number one, we could be wrong. But let's assume we're right. Let's assume we're right and the baby is in fact measuring small. So what does that mean? It means that if you look at 100 babies at this gestational age and you lined them up from smallest to biggest, right? Where does your baby fall in line? If we said, all right, you're in the ninth percentile, that means that, okay, this baby would be ninth from the smallest or 91st from the biggest. And is that a problem? Well, usually not, right? If you take a hundred third graders and line them up from smallest to biggest, the ninth smallest child doesn't mean there's a problem with that child, right? Some kids are big, some kids are small, some kids are tall, some kids are short. Again, this could be true for life. It could change over the years. The kids who are short in third grade might be tall in high school and vice versa. And so just because the baby's measuring in a smaller percentile, that does not mean there's any problem whatsoever going on. So sometimes one of the ways we distinguish that is we'll say SGA, small for gestational age, is sort of descriptive. It means the baby is measuring small, but it does not mean there's a problem. When we say fetal growth restriction or IGR, the implication is that there's actually a problem causing the baby to be small. So when we say that someone who has a baby who's measuring in a lower percentile is FGR or IGR, what we really should be saying is the baby's measuring SGA, the baby's measure, measuring small for gestational age, and it might be due 
to fetal growth restriction to a sort of a problem causing it, but it might also be due to absolutely nothing. So when I see people and the baby's measuring small, I'll tell them, all right, the baby's measuring small. Number one, we could be wrong. Number two, even if we're right, the majority or whatever, again, depends on the situation. Many, if not the majority, if not vast majority of these kids are perfectly fine and just small, nothing wrong with them. But then we talk about what are the other possible reasons a baby could be small that are not perfectly fine, right? One of the possible like abnormal reasons. The most common reason a baby could be small that's not just normal is the placenta is not working as well as it should. The placenta is what nourishes the baby, sort of gives the baby food, water, oxygen, all these things. And so if the placenta is not working so well, then maybe the baby will be quote unquote, like on a diet, getting fewer calories and might be small. So that is one possible reason. And that's why we do all these extra ultrasounds. We look at the blood flow, we look at the movement, we look at the fluid to make sure that the baby looks healthy. And if the baby is looking healthy and the placenta is looking healthy, it tells me that either there's no problem with the placenta whatsoever, or that if there is a problem with the placenta, it's pretty minor and we don't have to do anything. We can continue to watch and wait. Now, if there's other abnormal findings on the ultrasound, like the blood flow is abnormal or the fluid is low, then that tells me that A, there probably is a problem with the placenta and it's a little more severe. And then we have to decide what to do about it again, which might mean come back in two days. It might mean we have to deliver the baby. It depends on the details there. And that's usually the question that's coming up when a baby's measuring small. Do we think there's a problem with placenta or do we think there's not, or at least it's mild enough that we could continue? So that's one of the first questions to ask your providers. At this moment in time, do you think the baby is small just because the baby's small? Or do you think the baby is small because there's a problem with the placenta? And if so, how bad is it? And what are we going to do about it? The other question is, there are causes of fetal growth restriction that are much worse. They're fortunately much more rare. Things like genetic problems of the baby, anatomic problems of the baby, infections in the baby, you know, things that are fortunately rare, but can have much worse outcomes. Those are a little bit harder to know about unless it's profound, unless you see abnormalities in the baby on ultrasound, unless the growth is way off the charts. And that's why people talk about sometimes doing an amniocentesis to check for genetics or other blood tests and this. Fortunately, that's not usually the cause. It's rare, but it can be possible reason. And that's another question to ask. Say, how concerned are you that this might be something other than normal baby or a placental issue? And if the answer is, well, not that concerned, that's good. If the answer is, yeah, I'm really concerned, then that's a much bigger issue. So again, it's a complicated topic. Every case is unique and needs to be individualized. But generally, the biggest questions are, do I think this is just a small baby who's perfectly fine versus a baby that is fine but has a placenta that's not working as well, and if so, how bad? Versus the more rare, is this a bigger problem related to the baby itself or an infection or something like that? All right, next question is from Chaya related to GBS or Group B Strep. Hi, first off, I just found this podcast through the toast. All right, Chaya, welcome. We welcome all our toasters. And I feel like I struck gold. I love it. I have so many questions I'd love to ask, but let's start with one. What is your opinion on Group B Strep? During my last labor, I arrived to the hospital nearly ready to push. My doctor mentioned that my sac was bulging and if she just broke my water, then my baby would be out in minutes. But 
When she checked my chart and saw that I was GBS positive, she insisted on waiting to break my waters and instead I was put on IV antibiotics for about five hours. She then broke my waters and my baby was out in under a half hour. Now, the part that I find strange is that the positive GBS was actually from when I was 20 weeks through a urine sample. Because I was positive then, my doctor did not retest closer to delivery. I'm now pregnant again and was already tested through my urine at eight weeks. Why? Question mark. And I'm once again positive. I've done some research, but I'd love to hear your take on the matter. Thank you and looking forward. All right, Chaya, great question. Group B strep. So basically, group B strep is a bacteria. It's a bug that is found in a certain percentage of women in their genital tract. So whether that's the vagina, whether that's the rectum, but it's found there. And it's not an abnormal bug to have in life, meaning you're walking around, you have it, you, there's no symptoms from it typically, you don't have to treat it, you don't have to test for it. And it probably it happens at about 20% uh, of women, meaning it's a pretty common thing to have. And normally we would never care about it in any way whatsoever, because again, it's not a problem, it's not an infection. It's just one of the bugs that some people have and some people don't. The reason we care in pregnancy is because if a newborn gets infected with group B strep, it can be very dangerous for the newborn. So the question is, we know that about, again, um, this is a round number, around 20% of women have group B strep, and we know it's not a great thing for babies. What do we do about that? Way back when, the strategy was we basically did not treat people for this because 20% of women have it, but definitely not 20% of babies get infected with group B strep, meaning of all the babies that pass through a mom who have group B strep, very few of them get infected and get sick. So what we would do is if there were certain risk factors like she had a fever or water was broken a long time or she was preterm, we'd give them antibiotics. And if they were full term and healthy, we wouldn't give antibiotics. Subsequent to this, this is about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, they did some research and determined that in fact, a better strategy would be to test everybody at around 35, 36 weeks with a vaginal rectovaginal culture with a Q-tip swab, send it to the lab and find out exactly who has and who doesn't have group B strep. And in the ones that have it, when they come in labor, we're going to give her antibiotics in labor to reduce the amount of group B strep and prevent the baby from getting group B strep. And it was determined that this strategy, testing everybody and treating the ones who have group B strep, was better in terms of preventing group B strep in the babies than the old strategy. So that was the upside. It was better. The downside is now you're giving about 20% of women antibiotics in labor. Maybe there's some downside to that, maybe not. But basically, the strategy that's been accepted certainly in the US, and I think, I don't know, but I think in many parts of the world, is we test women for group B strep around 35, 36 weeks, and those who are positive get antibiotics in labor, those who are negative do not. There's a couple of exceptions to that. One of the exceptions is if someone has group B strep in their urine earlier in pregnancy, the thought is if it gets in your urine, you must have a very high amount vaginally or rectally, so we just consider that person positive at the time of delivery and we don't test them in 35, 36 weeks. That's the current strategy. So for you at that specific part of your story does make sense. Someone who has it in their urine, whether it's at 10 weeks, 20 weeks, 30 weeks, whatever pregnancy, we sort of like, they are 
considered group B strep positive at the time of delivery, and we don't do a culture, a vaginal culture at 35, 36 weeks. So that's why that was done. Again, even if you treat the group B strep in the urine with antibiotics and you don't find it in the urine anymore, we still consider you positive the whole pregnancy. So once positive in the urine, you're positive for the whole pregnancy. That's the typical, typical sort of situation. That's why they did it for you. The second issue is, okay, you come in labor, they find out you're group B strep positive, and they're saying, oh, we need to get a certain amount of hours of antibiotics into you before the baby is born. Now, that is a little bit more of a controversial position. There are data that would tell you that the longer you are exposed to the antibiotics, the lower the chance of the baby having group B strep, meaning if you, let's say, got antibiotics and the baby's born 20 minutes later, there's a certain percent chance that the baby's going to get group B strep versus if you come in labor and get an hour or two of antibiotics, that chance is lower. And if it's four hours, it's lower. And typically the recommendation is we'd like there to be four plus hours of antibiotic exposure before the baby's born. Now, the issue with that is we don't know for certain that if someone like you comes in, we know is group B strep positive, you got a dose of antibiotics. Is it better to intentionally wait and not break your water and let those four hours pass versus I would normally break your water, let's break your water, deliver the baby, which is actually better. We don't know because it hasn't really been studied in that way to know for certain, but sort of the typical stated recommendations are, well, if you can wait, you wait. And if there's anything you would need to do urgently, don't hesitate. So for example, if let's say you came and you're in the same situation, your water bag is bulging, but they were really concerned about the baby for another reason and wanted the baby to be born immediately, they wouldn't sort of hold off on breaking your water because of the GBS. They would basically break your water, deliver the baby because that's what needs to be done. So be it. But if all things being equal and everything's okay, they're like, all right, we'll try to wait the four hours to sort of optimize potentially the groupie strip coverage of the baby. It's a practice that's commonly done. Again, there isn't great data to tell you for sure that it's the best way to go because that'd have to be studied prospectively. You'd have to take, you know, let's say 200 women just like you and 100 of them break their water after four to five hours like you did and the other 100 break their water after 20 minutes and see how the babies do. But that really hasn't been done, so it's hard to say for sure. But going backwards based on the data we have, that's what's frequently done. So I think that's probably the reason that happened. And it's not that uncommon, at least in my experience. All right. Last question for today's mailbag. This is an anonymous listener who did not want her name mentioned, but she asked a question about Zofran in pregnancy. Message. Would love to hear your thoughts on taking Zofran in the first trimester for extreme nausea. Is it safe? Thank you and love the pod. Okay. Thank you to this listener for sending the question. Uh, Zofran is a anti-nausea medication. Zofran is the, the brand name or the trade name. And sort of the generic name is Ondansetron, O-N-D-A-N-S-E-T-R-O-N. Those are the same thing. And so the question is, is it safe to take in pregnancy? Now, this is a very common question because a lot of women have nausea in the first trimester. And Zofran happens to be a really, really good medication or effective medication for nausea. So this comes up a lot. I will tell you that the answer is unfortunately a little bit complicated. And part of this is because studying the safety of medications early in pregnancy is always a little complicated because the concern, at least that 
comes up with Zofran is does taking it increase the risk of birth defects in the baby, right? The fear is if the mother takes any medication in pregnancy, particularly in the first trimester, when all the organs are being formed, the baby's organs are being formed, will that medication somehow interfere with that process and increase the risk of birth defects? So that's a concern. So the best way to study that would be to take, let's say, 10,000 women, randomly divide them into two groups of 5,000, give 5,000 of them Zofran at some dose, standard dose every day in the first trimester, and the other 5,000 give a placebo pill. They don't know what they're, you know, no one knows if they're getting Zofran or the placebo. At least they're not supposed to know. They might know if they have less nausea, but whatever. And then take all 10,000 babies after birth and do like full MRIs, echocardiograms, everything you can do to test, count the number of birth defects in each group and see if there's more in the Zofran group than in the placebo group. That would be the way to do the study. The problem is that's not how these studies are done because you're never going to be able to sign 10,000 people up for a study like that. And so what ends up happening is you get these sort of series where they say, all right, we had 500 women that took Zofran and X percent of them had birth defects. And then we compared them to 500 women who didn't take Zofran and Y percent of those babies had birth defects. And here's the difference. And that's the risk of birth defects from taking Zofran. But the problem with that is twofold. Number one, the people who take Zofran, they don't take it randomly, right? So maybe it's because obviously they have more nausea. Maybe there's something about more nausea. Now, as far as we know, having more nausea does not increase the risk of birth defects, but maybe there's something about people's response to it, or maybe risk factors for nausea are also risk factors for birth defects. Who knows? Or maybe they're trying other things for nausea that are not Zofran, that they're not telling us about, or we don't know about, or they don't realize might be an issue, or maybe it affects whatever. There's a lot of things that are different. And number two, sometimes when people take medications in pregnancy, their babies get more thoroughly examined after birth or during pregnancy. So maybe you're picking up more birth defects that you just wouldn't pick up and aren't necessarily going to be an issue after birth. A classic example I give to patients is what if I've you know, a woman who's taking medication and they say, oh, because of medication, I'm going to do a very thorough evaluation of the baby's heart. And they find like a one or two millimeter hole in the heart. Now that is probably just going to close sometime after birth. It's not going to have any effect on this kid's health, life, heart, anything, but we know about it. And so that baby gets listed as having a heart defect. Whereas someone who didn't take the medication, didn't have that crazy, very detailed ultrasound. And we have no idea if that kid has a hole in the heart that's one millimeter or not, because you would never know about it. And so that is one of the ways these studies can be flawed. So that's the background. What does the data actually show? The data is mixed. The preponderance of data suggests that there is not an increased risk of birth defects for women who take Zofran. There are a few sporadic studies here and there that do suggest that, meaning if you Google it, you will definitely find a study out there that will suggest an increased risk of birth defects, particularly heart defects, and I think cleft palates with Zofran. But many other studies have not confirmed those findings. And if a medication really does increase the risk of birth defects, you would expect it to be found in all the studies, pretty much, because why would it happen in one group and not in another group? And so the overall arching review of the evidence currently at the end of 2023 suggests that Zofran does not increase the risk of birth defects. Now, with that said, obviously, there could be more research coming out. It's possible there's always some slight risk, and that's why we don't typically just give medications for no reason whatsoever. So what happens is, generally in pregnancy, if someone has nausea, we try things with 
sort of the highest safety profile and then work our way down the list based on how severe it is. So typical first line for nausea, vomiting in pregnancy, vitamin B6, and Unisom, which is an over-the-counter sleep medication, that combination together has been studied for a very, 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 very long time and has been shown to be safe. Interestingly, 40 years ago, there was actually a concern that it might not be safe, but that was total debunked, so it, it is safe. And then if those don't work, we start moving to the next line of medications, and Zofran might be one of those. And I always tell people exactly what I said here, that the preponderance of data suggests there's not an increased risk of birth defects. But again, it's very hard to study this perfectly. And so really just you have to balance the potential risks of taking the medication, which seem to be low versus the benefit, which is going to be great if you can't eat anything and you can't drink anything and you're very, very sick. If you're not that sick, the benefit's not as great. So it's a, it has to be a personalized, individualized conversation, but those are sort of the factors that go into it. All right. Thank you all. This was a great mailback. Thanks for sending in questions. Keep sending the questions and we will keep answering them. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.